Hidden among the tourist traps of Cannery Row, Monterey's famous waterfront, is a nondescript wooden building. The shops around it and the tacky souvenirs they sell will be familiar to anyone who's ever visited any port city from Southampton to Sydney, but this building represents something genuinely unique about this city and its bay. Its one-time occupant inspired the main character of one of the greatest works by the author John Steinbeck. Steinbeck grew up just inland of Monterey in Salinas, and in 1945, he immortalized Cannery Row in the novel of the same name. The plot of the novel unfolds as a series of short stories about interactions between the waterfront's inhabitants, from the Chinese grocer to the marine biologist. This makes the book a perfect microcosm of the California experience, as the Golden State's history is one of encounters between diverse cultures. Steinbeck may have chosen Monterey as a setting in part because the fruits of these cultural interactions are so clear here. Just inland is Monterey State Historic Park, which preserves buildings from the city's days as a colonial capital under Spain, and then a state capital under Mexico. Particularly fascinating are the structures built in the early 19th century, when the Mexican governors of Alta California opened the doors, perhaps unwisely in retrospect, to Yankee whalers and merchants, resulting in the architectural mashup of adobe walls and New England gables known as Monterey Colonial. The characters in Cannery Row come from equally scattered backgrounds, and the novel's fame in large part explains why today you're likely to encounter visitors from across our planet here. But the interactions between cultures that are so visible in Monterey might never have happened without its spectacular natural setting. The Spanish colonized the city because of its large, crescent-shaped bay and the safe harbor it forms. The American whalers were drawn in by the bay's marine mammals, while it was fish that attracted the immigrants, particularly from the Mediterranean, that set the scene for Steinbeck's novel. And at least since 1879, when Robert Louis Stevenson stayed here, Monterey has become one of the California coast's biggest draws because of the staggering richness of wildlife in its waters and its craggy, cypress-fringed shorelines, the model for Stevenson's Treasure Island, according to questionable local lore. It's appropriate, then, that at the same time Steinbeck was writing Cannery Row, the place that inspired it was a focal point for a new field of marine biology that emphasized the interactions between organisms and their environments. Just as his literary equivalent was part of a large story built out of several smaller ones, the occupant of that wooden building on Cannery Row was one of the first to recognize that the many interactions he could observe just offshore were key to understanding the complicated web of life that is Monterey Bay. Those interactions, between organisms as diverse as kelp, crustaceans, whales, and plankton, are still on full view today. Many of its species have actually become more common since Steinbeck's time. And underlying all this diversity is one environmental factor that plays an outsized role. The cold flow of the life-giving California current. Welcome aboard the Voyages podcast. I'm John Orkut, and this is the third episode in a four-part series exploring the diverse ecosystems of the California coast. The first focused on the Bay Area and introduced the huge natural cycles that shape life and landscapes here. The second on the North Coast and the fuzzy line between land and sea there. If you haven't listened to these episodes yet, I suggest doing so now and then joining me here to take the plunge into the Pacific and Monterey Bay since we'll be building on themes from those episodes. 
As we journey through the varied and beautiful submarine habitats of the bay, we'll see how these ecosystems are built up by the countless interactions between marine species, and how the overwhelming diversity that results wouldn't be possible without the California current and the nutrients it dredges up from the depths. First, though, we'll spend a little time with the field of science that studies these interactions, because not only does Monterey have a reasonable claim to be in the birthplace of marine ecology, it remains a hugely important site in the field today thanks to a convoluted seafloor and the most stunning window into the underwater world our species has ever built. small wooden building on Cannery Row, the Pacific Biological Laboratories to give it its proper name, and you'll get a better sense of its original function. Out back, facing the bay, you'll see a series of concrete tubs. These were specimen tanks built by Ed Ricketts, real-life inspiration for the character Doc in Steinbeck's novel. Ricketts' curiosity and approachability shine through in his fictionalized form, as they do in the book he co-authored with Steinbeck, The Sea of Cortez. But to understand why he was such an important scientific pioneer, head to the independent bookstores of Carmel or Santa Cruz and pick up a copy of Ricketts' own Between Pacific Tides. The organization of the book tells you everything you need to know. Prior to Ricketts' generation, marine biology focused on taxonomy, the naming and describing of species, sometimes augmented by studies of how those species were related to one another. Little ink was wasted discussing the environments in which the organisms lived. But Between Pacific Tides bucks this trend, with chapters focused on particular habitats rather than groups of animals. Ricketts was among the first in modern history to realize that taxonomy was just one of many stories our world's oceans tell. Instead of simply describing the sea's diversity, he wanted to understand why that diversity existed in the first place. The answer lies in interactions, not only between different species, but between the living and non-living environments. The rocky coasts, sandy beaches, and muddy bays of the North Coast, for example, all harbor very different organisms thanks to factors like the stability of the seafloor and exposure to wind and waves. As a consequence, those species interact with each other in different ways. Whether by chance or by choice, when Ricketts moved to the Monterey area in the 20s, he couldn't have asked for a better natural laboratory in which to study the impacts of environment on marine life. The undersea world of Monterey Bay is varied and mind-bogglingly diverse. In the less than 15 miles of coastline between Point Cabrillo, the headland rising to the west of Cannery Row, to the mouth of the Salinas River that connects Steinbeck's hometown to the Pacific, you'll encounter all three of the shoreline types covered in the previous episode, with some pretty spectacular sand dunes thrown in for good measure. But such diverse coastlines are not rare on the west coast. What makes Monterey Bay so special are its offshore habitats. These, of course, are not as easily observed as a dramatic bluff or a broad beach, but in Monterey Bay they become much more accessible. This is because of the unique geography of the bay itself, but also because just down the road from the Pacific Biological Laboratories is a glittering modern testament to the ideas that Ed Ricketts and his contemporaries developed. The Monterey Bay Aquarium is the main reason that most visitors come to the city, and with good reason. It's not only one of the most incredible aquariums ever built, 
it's laser-focused on the natural wonders of the bay. Like Between Pacific Tides, it's organized not by taxonomy, but by habitat. We've already visited a few of these habitats. A series of tanks and aviaries in the aquarium's northeast wing recreate coastal streams, estuaries, and rocky and sandy shores. Other environments are inaccessible by their very nature. If you want to see the lingcod and wolf eels of deep reefs, or the skates and flatfish of the sandy seafloor, you pretty much have to do so through the aquarium's windows. But other habitats are surprisingly easy to appreciate both under the aquarium's roof and in the bay beyond its walls. The huge natural forces that shape the California coastline also form the foundations of most of these habitats, but in one case, our own species' ties to the ocean have led us to build bridges between land and sea, creating a new environment in the process. California sea lions, with their familiar barking call, are ubiquitous along the coast. But there may be nowhere where you can see them at such close quarters as at Monterey's Coast Guard Pier. And while the stroll down Cannery Road to see them is definitely worth your time, there are other reasons to head to the pier and to Fisherman's Wharf, its neighbor to the east. Both exist because of the connections between culture and nature in Monterey. Their names reflect that they were built to link human endeavors, specifically life-saving and fishing fleets, to the sea. But docks and piers don't just connect the city and the bay, they create new places where marine organisms can live. When Ed Ricketts wrote Between Pacific Tides, he included wharves as a unique habitat alongside natural shorelines. The pilings supporting tall piers provide solid footing for sessile organisms and a path between deep and shallow water for mobile species. These pilings are some of the best places to spot intertidal life in this or any other harbor. You can do so from above at any of Monterey's wharves or from below at the aquarium's wharf exhibit. Even better for wildlife viewing are floating docks. Any organism that can claim territory on these surfaces just below the surface has primo access to sunlight, but since the docks move up and down with the tides, they never have to deal with the dangers of being exposed at low tide. This makes floating docks fantastic for spotting species that are usually only visible at the very lowest of tides. But wharves are windows into the deeper sea in more ways than this. Because they extend out so far from land, usually into pretty deep water in the interest of allowing boats safe passage in and out, to walk along one is to venture to the edge of the open ocean. Sea lions are the most visible link to this world, where these excellent swimmers venture to find fish or squid to eat. This will be the first of many times I mention what the species you'll see along the coast feed on, because tracking who eats who in any ecosystem is important. Eating is how energy, usually in the form of sugars or fats, and nutrients, the sources of the chemical building blocks that all living things need to survive, move from one organism to another. Sea lions can neither make their own energy nor their own nutrients, which make them what ecologists call consumers, organisms that must eat other species to gain both and to survive. If you walk to the end of the pier, you may be able to see a couple of other important, if less flashy, Monterey Bay consumers. Jellyfish are open-water drifters. If you see one near shore, it's likely not long for being stranded on a beach. But a long enough wharf provides opportunities to see these animals in their element. You may also spy a school of the bay's most important fish, anchovies. Along with sardines, these small fish were long the basis of Monterey's economy, 
We, after all, are consumers as well, and we have a long history of consuming both of these herring relatives. The canneries of Cannery Row existed to process the tons of fish caught each year in the bay. One of those canneries would become the core of the aquarium, so it's appropriate that two of its most engrossing displays are circular tanks where you can see anchovies and sardines at close quarters. You can see for yourself how both feed by swimming around with their mouths nearly constantly open, a strategy known as filter feeding, while jellyfish use their stinging tentacles to capture food. But the target of both species is the same, plankton. Plankton are any organisms that drift with the ocean's winds and currents. Technically, jellies themselves meet the definition, but we usually use the term to refer to tiny species that can be broken down into two categories. Zooplankton are minuscule animals or animal relatives that themselves feed on phytoplankton, single-celled algae or bacteria that soak up solar energy through the process known as photosynthesis. Because they're able to harness the power of the sun to build sugars that can then be consumed by other organisms, these invisible but superabundant photosynthesizers are known as producers and are the foundation of most marine ecosystems. But just like any organism, phytoplankton needs nutrients that they can't build via photosynthesis, and this is where the California current comes into play. It's beneficial to underwater life in many ways. To the north at Cordell Bank, for example, it keeps the water clear and allows sunlight to penetrate deeper than usual. And wherever it flows, its cold water is able to hold more oxygen which is crucially important for any animal with gills. For the most part, though, the current doesn't carry nutrients with it. It provides them, nevertheless, by drawing them up from the oceanic abyss, where many are locked in deep-sea waters and sediments. The process is a complex one, but in a nutshell, as the current and the winds that drive it move perpendicular to the coast, they cause warmer surface waters to move offshore. That water has to be replaced with something, and in this case, that something is cold, deep water from below. The rushing in of these waters and the nutrients they carry is known as upwelling, a phenomenon especially common on north-to-south running coastlines like California's. Away from land, the nutrients provided by upwelling feed phytoplankton, which, directly or indirectly, feed everything else. When zooplankton feed on phytoplankton, they gain a relatively large proportion of the energy and nutrients originally stored in their cells. But when an anchovy or a jellyfish eats those zooplankton, much of that energy is lost, and by the time large consumers like sea lions eat those anchovies, very little of the phytoplankton's original energy is left. For a producer, then, it's important to minimize the amount of energy spent eating and maximizing the amount you eat. Jellies conserve energy by drifting rather than actively swimming, sea lions with their sleek hydrodynamic bodies, and anchovies by filter feeding. Filter feeding can be an extremely efficient way of getting a meal, especially if you're able to take in large mouthfuls of food in one gulp. If you watch the anchovies and sardines in the aquarium, you can see how their jaws have evolved to allow a huge gape. Huge, that is, for a fish a few inches long. Evolution has driven other lineages of filter feeding animals in different directions, maximizing feeding efficiency through massive body sizes, and even more massive mouths. In most of the world, the resulting giants live well offshore, but in Monterey Bay, you can not only reliably see some of the ocean's smallest filter feeders, but its very largest as well, all within clear sight of land.
the largest tank in the Monterey Bay Aquarium houses animals from the open ocean, such as tuna, hammerhead sharks, and sea turtles. It's one of the aquarium's many engineering marvels, and home to some of its most alien animals, species that we generally have little hope of seeing anywhere near shore. That's because, even in places where upwelling fuels diverse ecosystems, that upwelling requires a source of deep water, which usually lies far from land. Just to the north, a ship passing through the Golden Gate would need to travel over 30 miles before reaching a point where the seafloor starts to drop off significantly. But standing at either lighthouse that marks the edge of Monterey Bay, Point Pinos in Pacific Grove, and the aptly named Lighthouse Point in Santa Cruz, you're a mere seven miles from the abyss. That's because the seafloor of the bay is split by a chasm often compared to the Grand Canyon. This comparison is an excellent one, not only because the dimensions of the two canyons are similar, but one hypothesis for the Monterey Canyon's formation suggests that it may have been carved when the Colorado River flowed into the Pacific in Alta, rather than Baja, California. Though this is just one of many ideas that have been floated about its origins. There's still an amazing amount we don't know about this wonder of the deep. Wherever you travel around the bay, by land or by sea on one of the many tours available from Monterey and Santa Cruz, one unmissable landmark will tell you exactly where the head of the canyon is, and will help you start to make sense of its size. The huge power plant at Moss Landing, halfway between the bay's two major cities, is a mile and a half due inland from its westernmost reach. From there, it extends over 15 miles to the west, a bit beyond Pacific Grove, though the mouth of the canyon emits occasional undersea landslides that impact the ocean floor much further out to sea. What really amazes about the canyon, though, is not its size, but the way it brings the life of the open ocean into this sheltered bay. Just as off the Monterey Piers, upwelling and phytoplankton form the basis of the open ocean ecosystem, and just as nearer to shore, zooplankton are important primary consumers, organisms that feed directly on producers. Above this level, things start to get very complicated very quickly as species feed on one another in a complex mesh of relationships known as a food web, because, if you try to sketch the whole thing out, you wind up with something that looks more like a messy spider web than a clean, simple pyramid or chain. Ecologists use food webs to understand and describe ecosystems, and while they can be chaotic, as a rule you can assign any given species to one of four categories, of which producers and primary consumers are two. Secondary consumers are animals that have a broader diet, feeding on a variety of primary consumers. Jellyfish and anchovies, with their zooplankton-heavy diets, are great examples. But it's the final category that explains why there are so many opportunities for visitors to Santa Cruz or Monterey to venture out on the bay. Tertiary consumers, often more widely referred to as top predators, though this term has some heavy baggage, are the animals that can eat pretty much anything, including secondary and sometimes even other tertiary consumers. I've just used the phrase top predator in reference to the ocean, so I'm willing to bet that most of you just thought of sharks, of which there are several species here. Seacliff State Beach, just southwest of Santa Cruz, is the best place along the coast for seeing great whites, the archetypal marine predator, from shore. Those charismatic sea lions at the Monterey Wharves fit the bill as well. So too do the many seabirds that flock here, including not only familiar seagulls and murres, but far-ranging migratory species like shearwaters and albatross. The canyon draws in weirder predators too, the oddest of which is the ocean sunfish, our planet's largest bony fish. If you're lucky and observant, you can spy these bizarrely truncated and flattened fish as they float near the surface to warm up, 
before diving in search of jellies, fish, squid, and crustaceans. Some tertiary consumers don't fit most people's image of a predator. Chief among them are most spectacular living filter feeders. Whales have capitalized on the economy of scale, evolving the largest sizes of any animal ever to have existed. When an animal the size of a large whale filter feeds, it's not eating the plankton targeted by anchovies and sardines, but the anchovies and sardines themselves, or the shrimp relatives known as krill, or any number of other secondary consumers that it engulfs in its mouth. For the biggest of all whales, the group known as rorquals, this makes upwelling regions vast smorgasbords, and seldom are meals served as conveniently close to shore as they are in Monterey Bay. Exactly which rorquals you see depends on the time of year. In winter, gray whales pass through the bay en route to their calving grounds in Mexico, and in spring they pass through again on the way to Alaska. Upwelling sets in in earnest in late spring and in summer, and this is when the table is set for the real giants. The most common of these are humpback whales, which are a nearly guaranteed sight on any summer whale-watching cruise, but even larger species also make the occasional appearance. I was extremely lucky to see rare fin whales when I visited in May of 2022, but the giant to end all giants, the blue whale, is a much more common visitor to the bay. Other non-filter feeding whales target species higher up the food web. Dolphins and porpoises hunt fish that are themselves important secondary or tertiary consumers, while killer whales, the largest of all dolphin species, are specialized hunters of other marine mammals. If you venture out onto Monterey Bay, then, which you absolutely should if you can, you're not only hovering above one of our planet's most impressive canyons, but you're immersing yourself in a complex ecosystem in which the rich waters of the California current support an interconnected web that encompasses everything from tiny photosynthetic plankton to the most gigantic of animals. Seldom can such open ocean food webs be experienced so close to land, but it's in the sunlit shallows where one of the most diverse of all marine habitats holds sway, and shows just how complex ecosystems and the interactions that define them can be. Santa Cruz Boardwalk is a classic seaside amusement park, and whether you prefer volleyball, sunbathing, swimming, surfing, arcade games, fun houses, roller coasters, or gondolas, there's something for you here. Nearby, at the far northwestern extremity of Monterey Bay, bluffs rise up from the sandy beach on which it's built, providing one of the bay's best views of an ecosystem whose countless opportunities for marine life dwarf the comparatively paltry choices available to our species on the boardwalk. In summer months, when long days and ample sunlight meet the rich waters of the California current, a truly remarkable species reaches its full potential. Kelp may look like a plant, it's certainly large enough to hold its own against most trees, but it's actually oversized marine algae. Like plants, though, it's photosynthetic, able to capture energy from the sun and store it as sugars. In water shallow enough to provide a well-lit ocean floor, it can grow at a stunningly fast rate and to enormous sizes, up to 175 feet above the seabed. It's far from alone in its world. Many seaweeds and seagrasses flourish along the coasts, where they become the most visible producers, though phytoplankton are very much still a factor here as well. With so many algae, plants, and plankton bathed in sunlight, 
Energy supplies in the shallows skyrocket, supporting enormously rich and complex food webs. Looking down on the kelp forests that fringe the Santa Cruz headlands, you're likely to see a few tertiary consumers, such as harbor seals and seabirds. But much of this life may be invisible, either hidden by murky water or by the kelp itself, or by being too small to see from a distance. Experienced paddlers or divers can see some of this life firsthand. For the rest of us, the Monterey Bay Aquarium's signature exhibit is the best window onto this world. The kelp forest display can be appreciated on many different levels. It's an engineering and design marvel, a three-story tank in which live kelp grows in water pumped in from the bay and sways in artificially generated waves. If you're more moved by aesthetics, no aquarium exhibit anywhere in the world looks so much like a work of art, thanks to its collage of colors, textures, and motion. And for those of us with a predilection for biology, nowhere else can you get such a clear look into one of our planet's most diverse marine habitats. For obvious reasons, many primary consumers, animals like grazing snails, small crustaceans, and especially importantly, sea urchins, all of which feed directly on kelp and other seaweeds, are mostly not kept in the exhibit. Neither are large tertiary consumers such as marine mammals, which might be inclined to feed on their tank mates. But pretty much every other hub in the food web is represented, from the kelp itself and other producers, to plankton feeders like sea anemones and anchovies, to predatory invertebrates like sea stars and snails, to fish of all shapes, sizes, and behaviors. There's the colorful Garibaldi, California's state fish, slow-moving and slow-growing rockfish, and massive sea bass and sheep's head. Each animal has a different diet and interacts with kelp in different ways possibly using it as a food source, possibly as a hiding spot, possibly as a place to mate and lay eggs. In ecological terms, each species occupies a particular niche, a spot in the environment that it uniquely fills. Some niches are very narrow, like that of the hooded nudibranch, a sea slug that requires algae or seagrass to affix itself to, and plankton-rich waters from which it can capture food in its wide, transparent hood. Others are very broad, like that of the leopard shark, a common sight along the coast. Elkhorn Slough near Moss Landing is a great bet for spotting one in the wild, that feeds on small animals of all kinds. With so many niches available, life can proliferate here as in few other places in the ocean. Some of these niches may overlap with others, leading to competition, occasionally resulting in gradual behavioral or evolutionary change, sometimes leading to conflict as in the case of the Garibaldi, which will ferociously guard its territory against any and all intruders, including human divers. Others may overlap in ways that encourage mutually beneficial interactions. One of the most important of these involves kelp itself, and this coast's most charismatic mammal. It's an interaction that reveals the real marvel of kelp forests, that, complex as they are, they're even more complicated, and potentially more fragile, than they first appear. The one and only marine mammal on view in the Monterey Bay Aquarium is a species that has, as we'll see next episode, snatched conservation victory from the jaws of defeat. When the aquarium opened in 1984, the sea otters on display in the main hall were likely to be the only ones you saw in California. Today, 
you can walk out on the deck on the aquarium's uppermost floor for a fantastic and strangely neglected view down Cannery Row. Just seaward of the aquarium and Pacific Biological Labs, you'll certainly see the canopies of wild kelp forests, and floating amidst the uppermost fronds, you're very likely to spot otters. The saga of this species' near extinction and miraculous comeback is a story for another day, but its absence from California's kelp beds turned out to provide an important case study for ecologists. Sea otters are internet famous today for their charmingly human-like traits, hand-holding, tool use, and inquisitiveness among them. But for any shelled marine animal, they're the stuff of nightmares. Their aforementioned tool use and their large, flat, crushing teeth make them ideally suited for hunting crabs, snails, and even famously well-defended animals such as sea urchins. You might expect that removing such a voracious predator from a habitat would be a benefit for any of its potential prey. Indeed, received ecological wisdom in the early 20th century was that predator removal would lead to other species becoming more abundant across the board. The near extinction of California sea otters dealt a fatal blow to this old idea. When they disappeared from the region, diversity plummeted, and it did so precisely because food webs are so complicated causing impacts on one species to ripple throughout the coastal ecosystem. Otters are especially fond of sea urchins, spiny sea star relatives that most animals literally can't touch. With few to no otters around, sea urchins became more common. But urchins have a preferred food of their own, algae, including young kelp. Armies of sea urchins would clear out swaths of the seafloor that, without kelp, became known as urchin barrens essentially exposed undersea deserts. In this way, kelp, which depends on otters to keep the numbers of its primary predator low, and otters, which use kelp for shelter, have a mutually beneficial relationship despite neither species feeding on the other. Without sea otters and kelp, other animals suffered, from the abalone and other snails that depended directly on kelp for food, to nudibranchs and decorator crabs that used it as a place to live. Even large fish, like sea bass or sharks, that may not have directly interacted with either species but did feed on kelp-dependent animals, became scarce as well. The falling of so many ecological dominoes is known as a trophic cascade. In a trophic cascade, if one species is affected by some kind of change in the environment, for better or for worse, a series of events is kicked off that could be transmitted from species to species, often with entirely unexpected results. The sea otter case study shows just how hard it can be to predict the ripple effects that might ensue if any changes happen to a food web. Happily, the Monterey Bay area provides some of the best case studies of what happens when a species returns to a food web as well. Sea otters have rebounded in kelp forests to the extent that you're almost certain to see them on your visit, and they've made comebacks in other habitats as well. The diversity of Elkhorn Slough's estuary, for example, has been boosted by the return of otters, which feed on the shelled predators of eelgrass. These stories about what happens when a piece is added or removed from a food web are the most important that Monterey Bay has to tell, because the cascading effects they cause are a fact of life in the changing oceans of the world. The field of marine ecology that Ed Ricketts pioneered is alive and well at the world-class research facilities at the Monterey Bay Aquarium and at UC Santa Cruz, and we owe a lot of what we know about marine food webs to work done in the bay. Ecology can give us some idea of what to expect when change occurs, but to understand how our species brings about this change and what we can do about it, we'll be heading south to a legendarily remote coastline and the much more heavily populated areas beyond. Here,
Conservation successes and failures exist alongside works in progress that may represent the best path forward for conserving the teeming, but increasingly threatened, life supported by the California Current. Thanks for joining me on this third part of the Voyage with the Current. Having explored the nuts and bolts of California's marine ecosystems, in a couple of weeks we'll head further south to Big Sur, the Santa Barbara area, and the Channel Islands to see what happens when our species is added to the mix. While you're waiting for that episode, if you've been enjoying this series kicking off Voyage's third season, please take the time to rate, review, like, and subscribe to the podcast on the podcatcher of your choice. Along with word of mouth, this really does a lot to boost listenership. I'd also really appreciate any episode ideas or suggestions for interviews, and if you have either, you can contact me via Voyage's website at voyagepod.wordpress.com, where you can also find details on the destinations visited in previous episodes. You'll find links to the music used in each show, too, which this time featured works by two California-based groups. Cannery Row by the Black Irish Band, and a number of appropriately marine-themed songs from the 2021 album Drives to the Beach by Turn on the Sunlight. If you're inclined to take a musical journey to the Golden State's coast, you can find these and other works by both artists on the music service of your choice. Just as nutrients rising from the depths of Monterey Canyon draw back foraging blue whales each spring, I hope you'll join me for the final episode of this Voyage with the Current, and for all the voyages to come. (laughs) ¶¶